Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles to optimize human performance. On today's episode, we have Dr. Luke Hughes, a postdoctoral research fellow in applied exercise physiology at St. Mary's University and an expert on blood flow restriction training. Now, I've noticed blood flow restriction training is getting more popular in the training space and on social media. More blood flow restriction products are available to buy and people are starting to utilize this method to enhance their training. But is it worth the hype? What are the mechanisms behind blood flow restriction? Like, how does it work? Can anyone use it? And is it possible for it to be dangerous if used inappropriately? Well, Luke provides all the answers to these questions, so every listener will have information to help decide whether blood flow restriction training is right for them and how to use it. As always, follow The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com, and check out all of our other episodes. But for now, here is Dr. Luke Hughes. Hey, Luke, how are you doing? Hey, Phil, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on The Progress Theory. I've wanted to discuss blood flow restriction training for a while. And the reason is because whenever I go on Instagram, well, let's take a step back, actually. If you think of sports science in general, there's a lot more equipment being more readily available in the market. Equipment's becoming more and more affordable, so more and more gyms are stocking these types of equipment. And I've noticed that for blood flow restriction training, there seems to be a current burst, especially you see it on Instagram. So I was, I was trying to think to myself, a lot of people are now starting to use blood flow restriction training, but do they understand the mechanisms behind it? Are they doing it to the point where it could actually be dangerous if they're using it inappropriately or they're using it to a point where it's not actually that effective? And I was like, I've got to get you on because I know you're the expert in this area and I've got lots of questions to ask from what I've seen. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, no problem at all. And thank you for the invite to come and I'm happy to chat with you about it. And as you rightly said, it's become a bit of a craze in the last, especially the last 10 years. And then probably in the last mm. five years is when we've seen, as you said, a bit of an explosion of BFR devices. Yeah, the research has really sort of exploded the last 10, five years. But since I've, maybe it's lockdown or maybe people are using Instagram and certain social medias more to show off what they're doing. Uh, and that's where people are starting to take notice. So I thought, well, okay, yeah. right, let's, let's start talking about this. But um, before we go into the, the depths of the mechanisms behind blood flow restriction training, do you want to give a bit of an introduction of yourself? Yeah, sure. So my name is Luke. Um, I am originally from Wales, very proud Welshman. And, <laughs> um, yeah, I was very <laughs> proud in uh, February this year with the Six Nations, but we won't go yeah. into that. Um, <laughs> so originally from Wales, I left there at 18 and went to Loughborough University in the East Midlands to study uh, sports science. 
my research then was focused on cell culture. And then I then did a master's degree there, uh, exercise physiology. And it was essentially actually an exercise immunology project. And we were looking at how we can manipulate exercise intensities and how we can change the inflammatory response to exercise and use this to help prescribe exercise treatment for patients with chronic kidney disease, which obviously is quite an inflammatory disease. Mm. Um, And that's when I first kind of, my first exposure to how we can manipulate exercise and manipulate local physiology or systemic physiology to create some kind of response that we want. And then that's when I found blood flow restriction training. So the next step was moving down to London to do a PhD with Stephen Patterson. Um, I'd never actually been to London in my entire life. Really? Uh, I think it was the furthest south. Yeah, I think it was the furthest south I've ever been. <laughs> so, um, of being from North Wales. So came down to St. Mary's to do a PhD where I met you and shared an mm-hmm. office with you. Yeah, great times, great memories. Great times. Um, we we were we were never very good at the pub quiz though, unfortunately. But <laughs> aside from that, it was great fun. Yeah, and I did my PhD in blood flow restriction at Saint Mary's with Stephen, who had done his own PhD in blood flow restriction. It was a collaboration with University College London Hospital, and we did a study where we used blood flow restriction in uh, rehab for ACL patients, so following ACL reconstruction, and we did the first ever rct in the nhs using bfr so it was a pretty pretty cool project nice and ever since then yeah really developed hasn't yes. it like you stayed with st mary's and done even more stuff in blood flow restriction training yeah so post phd i've been a postdoc researcher um so i've done my first two years and just had an extension of funding so i've got another two years uh, of research now provided we can get back in the lab soon because i've missed a good chunk of that due to covid but yeah just just kind of furthered the BFR research and some of the avenues we ventured down are things we found in the PhD. Some of them were related to our main outcome measures. Some of them were surprise things we found along the way. And we kind of just tried to progress that now. Yeah, that must have been really handy because ultimately at the end of your PhD, you probably came away with a lot of knowledge, but a lot of questions as well. And the postdoc in this has allowed you to sort of expand on them a lot more. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think any good PhD, you come out with more questions than than answers in, in some ways. Yeah. And I think definitely, I remember during my Viva, a lot of the discussion was around, uh, you know, what if and how could this be moved forward and additional questions. And I think that's the fun part about it. But yeah, there's definitely lots of BFR papers coming out now. There's a handful each week. Uh, it's crazy, but yeah. there's still so much unanswered as well. So it's really an interesting area to work in. So let's start at the beginning. What is blood flow restriction training? Okay, so I suppose the easiest way to give an overview of it, it's when you use some form of a tourniquet and place it on your limb to restrict blood flow in that limb. And by tourniquet, any device that's designed to restrict blood flow can be classed as a tourniquet. So typically what we see um, in the blood flow restriction area in terms of research and practice is people will use different types of devices. So you have something from uh, an automated regulated device, which can be like FDA approved. Then you can have a manual blood pressure cuff with a handheld pump. And then you can have anything right the way down to a a TheraBand. So I I see people use simple resistance band or or cuffs and like knee wraps to restrict blood flow. Um, Uh, I think I've even seen someone use like a bike inner tube once. Well, when it started to get going, I've seen people use a bike inner tube as some form of tourniquet, mainly in the arms, I think. But I thought, wow, that's uh, that's creative. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, so one time I was in the in the gym near home and uh, I saw someone using a belt from their work trousers around their arm. <laughs> and I, I, I was I was on the other side of the gym and I was thinking, oh, don't say anything, just mind your own business. <laughs> but at the same time, you're then worried that 
this person's going to hurt themselves. I'm sure we'll discuss that a bit after. Um, but the general idea is that whatever device you're using, you place it proximally on the limb, so as proximal as possible, and then you inflate it or tighten it in some way, shape, or form to compress the underlying tissues, the underlying blood vessels, and then restrict blood flow to all the tissues like below and distal to that cuff, essentially. Okay. And what are the mechanisms behind that? So why, if someone's like training, why would they want to do that? So a lot of the early research around blood flow restriction training found that we can get significant muscle hypertrophy and strength improvements with it. And the key attractive factor is that we get these at a low exercise intensity. So the way I like to kind of describe it to people is if we think about adaptation so if we focus on muscle adaptation so hypertrophy and strength there's kind of three key factors we can kind of pinpoint for muscle growth so we've got you know metabolic stress as a stimulus we've got a high degree of mechanical tension and then some level of mild trauma or damage to the fibers where they then regenerate and we get remodeling and we get hypertrophy typically you know we know this is maximized with higher intensity exercise so set say 70, 75% one rep max or above. And this is what we've seen, like the ACSM recommendations for, for resistance training. The interesting thing about blood flow restriction exercise, it's, it's inherently low load. So we're looking at around 20 to 30% of, of one rep max, so significantly lower. And we know that that level of intensity exercise performed by itself isn't enough to stimulate significant adaptation, at least when it's not performed to concentric failure. However, what we see is that when we perform blood flow restriction during that low intensity exercise, we get muscle hypertrophy and strength improvements, which can be comparable to what we get with high intensity exercise. So obviously that's a very attractive factor about it. If we think about blood flow restriction exercise, it's it's low load. So that mechanic level of mechanical tension is low. There's not a significant degree of, of myotrauma. So what we think is one of the biggest drivers is the level of metabolic stress that we create in that muscle in those tissues when doing the exercise because we make the tissues ischemic and hypoxic. So uh, it creates one hell of an environment within the muscle. Mm. And it, because you've used the low loads and I guess different adaptations there, the recovery is better. So if you had like a high load, the 75 to 80% loads versus the BFR, load, but with 20%, because you've used the low loads, your response to that well, recovery to that would be quicker. So potentially you could increase the frequency of doing it. You increase the the frequency of your experiencing that metabolic environment you just described, which in turn could be better for developing hypertrophic type adaptations. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of the recovery, like the, the initial fatigue is, is a high level of fatigue. So in, mm. in the first hour post-exercise, I'm, I'm trying to think back to I remember the name of the authors, but one study where they showed you know, in the hour post-exercise, like f maximum force reduction was way down. But it's, it's an acute transient effect, and we recover pretty quickly. And yet, it can be used as a high frequency off the back of that. And mm. that's actually one of the most interesting areas of BFR research at the moment. I think, it for me anyway, there's a handful of studies that have, have looked at twice-daily blood flow restriction training six, seven days a week for three weeks. Oh, wow. And they're showing like hypertrophy and strength improvements and the magnitude of those improvements and what we'd see with like 12 weeks of training two or three times a week. So an area where it definitely is very attractive is intensive rehab. You know, if, if you've mm. got an athlete who's injured and you, you want to rehab them quickly, whether that's post ACL or after, I don't know, a tendonitis or anything like that, it's a really good tool to kind of give them a bit of a blast and hit them pretty quick with it and, and get such a high volume of training in a short period of time. But obviously there's then considerations off the back of that in terms of 
you know, muscle damage and overtraining as well. Yeah, yeah. It's finding that balance. Yeah, of course. That was kind of be my next question, actually, regarding what kind of populations would you use this with? And most people that you see on social media using it are healthy gym goers. But I know you've done a lot of work with those that have had some form of knee injury. I think was one of your PhD studies with those that are recovering from ACL surgery. Yeah, it was um, it was an ACL patient, so um, individuals who had a hamstring autograft, and we looked at using BFR post surgery, and we compared it to the standard care. So the standard care at UCL Hospital at the time was to load them heavy, so seventy percent of one rep max beginning at three weeks post-surgery wow. so we looked at using bfr instead and doing 30 percent more in max and, and we looked at you know what eight weeks of training which took them to about three months post-surgery we looked at what was the effect on strength what was the effect on muscle size physical function all, all these all these different things so it's kind of circle back to the, the first point for me it's mostly beneficial for injured or load compromised uh, individuals so load compromise being so someone who's injured so post-surgery as an example, or, or the elderly, this individual with sarcopenia who is quite weak, high level of anabolic resistance, those individuals seem to respond really well to it. So anyone who, who would benefit from the benefits of heavy training, but can't tolerate that load for whatever reason, they're, I think, for me, the, the key target population. But there's also a whole other side to BFR now where it's like the more the performance side and how it could potentially be used in athletes to have different kinds of benefits, mostly from a load management perspective. Load management as in they don't want to fatigue themselves too much from a large amount of training because it might affect their sporting performance. But using BFR might enable them to train more, but without the huge amount of fatigue that comes with training more and ultimately have better adaptations which could lead to improvements in performance yeah so I, I do some work with different football and rugby clubs and one of the ways they're interested and we've been discussing a lot recently is how it can be used when they're not injured and that's exactly what we've been discussing using it in season to maintain muscle mass and, and the strength level without loading them too much and without fatiguing them and I suppose really important when if it's a particular time point where there's a high volume of fixtures then I think around then it could be really useful and then also like simple things like when you're traveling if you're in hotel rooms quite a lot and potentially don't have access to gyms I, i've taken the bfr cuff on holiday with me I'm, I'm guilty of that <laughs> but it can be really useful in, in those situations uh, as well so it's not just a rehab tool but for me the, the biggest application is from a rehab perspective and even with a busy week a lot of training that's implementing this type of bfr resistance training is not going to affect your other training so, so if, say for example you've got really busy week you're a rugby player You've got training, then you've got field training, you're on grass, then you're back in the gym with all that different training clustered around each other. Even though you get after an hour of blood flow restriction training, you get that high level fatigue, but it give yourself two hours, then you'd be recovered, ready for the grass training. And then so you essentially can pack even more into a training week just because of how well you recover from this style of training. Yeah, potentially, yeah. And I think that the key thing that for people to remember then is when they're, if they're considering doing that, um, it's just how you're going to monitor that. A particularly attractive thing about BFR training, particularly from a high-frequency perspective, is that we don't see muscle damage, really, like we would with normal traditional high-load resistance exercise, as an example. Interestingly, we what we've, a few studies have shown is that we get the response, so we get the inflammatory response, we get things occurring within the tissue as if muscle damage has occurred, whereas it hasn't which is one of the ways we think it might be contributing to like tissue remodeling 
but we don't typically see muscle damage like we would with normal exercise. There's been a couple of individual cases, but if you dig down into these, it's more related to the way BFR has been applied and the population that's been used in that are probably more, what's the word I'm looking for? They, those factors probably contribute to the, the any issues that have arisen rather than blood flow restriction per se. So it's, it's using it smartly, using it correctly. Uh, speaking of using it for performance, I sent you a message the other day regarding the potential, its potential use for astronauts while in space, because obviously they can't. Yes. <laughs> when you're in microgravity, you can't load the skeletal system as well. So you're not going to get that gravity response, which is allowing you to keep your muscle mass and your muscle strength. They do train for up to two hours a day, but potentially the use of blood flow restriction training, they might be able to utilize that stimulus in a smaller area so obviously when you're in the international spaceship for example you can't have too much equipment up there but using mm -hmm. something like bfr means you could use lower loads find a way of making sure that you can push against something and you could surely that would then lead to a, a reduction in the amount of degradation your muscles would have when you're spending a lot of time in space yeah definitely and I, i'm glad you brought that up i know we spoke about this ourselves uh, outside of work but that is one of my like main interests at the moment because I think it's, the, the applications are just glaringly obvious. Yeah. We look at what happens to astronauts in space, several different physiological systems that decondition, where it's muscle, bone, cardiovascular, tendons. And essentially what we see, it mirrors the effects of what we see during bed rest and mobilization on Earth. And as you said, exercise is used on the space station and they currently have the treadmill, the resistance exercise device and, and an ergometer. And, yeah, the ARED. Yeah, ARED, yeah. And as you rightly said, they don't have a lot of time for exercise and there's not a lot of space and if you look at like the goals of the space agencies at the minute is to travel further into space and it requires a new generation of spacecraft and if you look at the orion spacecraft it's even more smaller and, and they're going to be more concerned about packing food and, and water and you know oxygen supply into that so there's not a lot of room for exercise equipment and that's why i think bfr could really come in because it would mean there's less loading capacity requirements aboard a spacecraft the actual duration of the sessions themselves are pretty short. If you're doing like a, a single exercise, it's about five to six minutes and you're done. Mm. So it can be relatively short and, and you can use it along with other, you can use it with resistance exercise, aerobic, with electrical stimulation. And yeah, the possibilities are, are pretty endless mm. with that. Which one's the Orion mission? Is that something coming up? Yeah, so it's it's the new gen it's like the new generation of spacecraft that are going to be used for like lunar missions. So you're going to be building the lunar gateway, so the space station around the moon to then create a lunar base and then onwards to Mars. That's the new spacecraft, which is just yeah, it's like it's way smaller. Like, there's already a lot of constraints on what they can take in terms of life support equipment, etc., research equipment, exercise stuff. But there's going to be even less room, and they're going to be travelling further. <laughs> if we're thinking seven months to Mars, mm. we think about how deconditioned the astronauts. Like you, you see them land uh, in the middle of the desert, and and they have to be like carried out, and they're so weak and fragile. And they start the reconditioning process like pretty much the next day. Like I know the uh, European Space Agency was three weeks long as a, as a minimum, and they started the day after because they're so deconditioned. But if you think about the longer duration travel, if they're gonna travel to Mars, they need to be in good condition when they get there. Mm. To, land the spacecraft, get out, build a habitat, do all the surface exploration. So anything we could use to keep them, you know, as physically fit as possible on the way would be good. And I think, yeah, BFR could definitely fit. We just, we need the space agencies to throw some money at us. That's what we need. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then we can do that stuff. Yeah, because I'm involved. As with... does every researcher need that. Yeah, exactly. Grant money everywhere, hopefully. 
I mean, we should, should probably, and we will probably collaborate a little bit more once we <laughs> finish the uh, podcast, because obviously I'm part of another research group which is looking at jumping in space. You're doing blood flow restriction in space, I'm thinking. And that was one of the reasons why... Let's I was, jump with blood flow restriction. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons I started mentioning it. And then you go, oh, we've already got a paper of blood flow restrictions for astronauts uh, in review or something like that. I was like, oh, right, <laughs> you're a few steps ahead of me. Mate, that's a really exciting area. Yeah, it really is. And I've, I've been following the work you guys have been doing with the jump sled and stuff, and that's really cool. Mm. And hopefully that'll be up there on a parabolic flight as soon as possible for you guys. Yeah, fingers crossed. Once COVID's out of the way, hopefully that will be the next thing to, to happen. I knew ESA were aiming to get to uh, the moon for like 2023. Yeah. And it looks like a number of government agencies are trying to do that as well so it looks like a big collective effort well space exploration is going to be a big thing in the next decade so astronauts need to be fit and healthy whatever they're doing so uh, we need to make sure that we're providing the the right training prescription to make sure that they don't get the degradation of the human body like they could do if they didn't if they were in space for that long exactly and if this podcast gets enough exposure maybe you can record one from the moon at some point and we can discuss this again in more depth absolutely <laughs> I don't know if the Wi-Fi yeah. is going to be good enough. It's, it's probably better than the Wi-Fi at home. <laughs> I'll take so. my modem. <laughs> what about sets and reps when it comes to blood flow restriction training? So I've been involved as like the participant in a number of studies, and quite often the sets and reps they prescribe for BFR seems to be 30 reps, then 15, then 15, with some kind of short rest periods in between. Where's that come from? And is that a kind of set and rep strategy you'd recommend for someone utilizing blood flow restriction training? Yeah, so a good question, and a question that pops up quite often, probably because of the answer. If I'm honest, it's something that was done in early research, that, that set and rep scheme, uh, and it worked. So it's been used again and again. So I like to try to explain it a little bit more than that. You think what we're trying to do really, if we think back to what we said at the beginning about metabolic stress, we're trying to create a high degree of metabolic stress in the muscle. And Phil, you, you've done a few of my studies and the, the first 30 reps can be pretty easy. And it's when we built up that metabolic stress and then we're trapping it in the muscle because we're partially restricting arterial inflow, but we're completely restricting venous outflow. So as, as you know, there's no real recovery or relief in between sets. And that's when it starts to get really difficult. And what you'll find with most people is that they don't actually manage the 75 reps. Like we're pushing them, they're hitting concentric failure before that. So it's just something that's been used. There was one study back in 2013 that had looked at a training program and they actually doubled the um, volume of exercise. So it was like 70 uh, 30, 30, 30 reps. And they reported that there was no further benefit on adaptation. We know the 75 rep protocol, as it's commonly known, works. So it's just continued to be used. So another common one is performing three or four sets to failure. The problem you face there, this is something that Stephen, my PhD supervisor, was telling me about from his PhD. When you perform sets to failure, you might have someone doing 120 reps in the first set, <laughs> which is just, and then nothing in the set two, which is ridiculous. <laughs> 125, and, yeah, I, one. Uh, yeah, yeah, 125-1-0, <laughs> and then a lot of pain. But what you find is that in a clinical patient, our ACL patient, three weeks post-surgery, we're putting them on the leg press, and we're doing single leg press, 30% one remax. I'm not going to ask them to do 120 reps in the first set. That knee's already annoyed as it is. It's irritable. So that, pro that approach, in my opinion, wouldn't really be feasible. Definitely not the most feasible approach in a clinical application. But yeah, that certain rep scheme has been used and continued to work. So wh why fix it if it isn't broken? Yeah. From that study you mentioned a little bit earlier, it does sound like there's a level of diminishing returns. You hit a certain level of reps, but after that, it's not going to have any further effects. So there's no point. But I guess, yeah, like you said, if the 30, 15, 15, 15 works, 
then why not continue using that or some variant of it? <laughs> and then I guess you're just managing based on the situation, the person that you're working with, whether you're going to choose to go to failure because ultimately <laughs> that's going to affect if they can do one massive first set and then hardly anything after that. That's impressive that you get the uh, yeah. BFR on those with ACL reconstructions three weeks after surgery. I didn't realize it was that early. Yeah, that's what we did in, in, in my study in the PhD, the final patient study, and mm. people have used it earlier. So we were we followed like a criteria-driven approach to start in rehab. So we used that, the Lee Harrington protocol that was proposed. And beginning at, so two weeks after surgery, they had their, their, their sutures removed, and then we started assessing them every 48 hours. And if, once they could hit certain criteria, we retested their 10RM, and then we started training. We did that, so it's obviously everyone recovers differently. So everyone would start from a set point, but it worked out between our two intervention groups. I think it was like one was 21 days and one was 22 days post-surgery when we began. At the time, that was pretty early for ACL rehab, but I know individuals and cases who put it on three or four days post-surgery in a different manner, not with resistance exercise in combination with electrical stimulation or isometric exercise or passive movement or, or, or something else. Or even walking. Yeah, walking's a big one. This is still the area of BFR research that baffles me huh. because I think it's one of the most interesting areas is that we see that when we put the cuff on during low-intensity aerobic exercise, we get improvements in muscle mass and strength, which you wouldn't normally expect with aerobic exercise, aerobic type exercise of any intensity. And then we also see improvements in aerobic capacity and vascular changes as well. I think that's a really key thing for rehab because if we have an ACL patient in a leg brace for a week after surgery, if we think they're in that leg brace for that first week, they're just atrophying. So they're just they're losing muscle uh, size, they're losing strength. And then once we get them ambulating, they're just maintaining what they have or even still losing them. So putting the BFR on in the aerobic walking, cycling can have a really big impact there. I think you're going to see a lot more clinical studies looking at aerobic exercise in the next three, four, five years. What's the common mistakes you see people using with blood flow restriction training? And the reason I ask that now is because I reckon someone hearing that for the first time saying that you're getting blood flow restriction training on someone that's just had very serious surgery is like, oh, that's a bit dodgy. However, it sounds very yeah. logical and seems to have a very positive effect. Is there anything that people could do, whether it's with a, an injured population, elderly population, or just a healthy, I want to develop hypertrophy type population, where people make common mistakes? Yeah, absolutely. A couple of key things jumped to mind there. So the first kind of one really, and the main one is the pressure that's applied. Typically devices like outside of Japan will apply pressure in millimeters of mercury. What I found in the literature when I, when I first began my PhD and did a review of the literature, everyone was using different pressures and I couldn't figure out why. And what you might see is that in, in one study cohort, the same pressure is applied to all individuals. But the problem with that is that we're not we're going to get different levels of blood flow reduction in the individuals. Like we, we both know that I've got way more muscle mass on my legs than you. So <laughs> if we put the same pressure on me and you, you're going to get your blood flow reduced more because you have less slim tissue. And the issue there is that let's say what we want to do with BFR is we want to partially restrict the arterial inflow. We want to restrict it enough to cause this metabolic stress and cause enough you know, changes to local tissue physiology, but we don't want to completely restrict arterial blood flow because it might mm -hmm. increase the risk of an adverse event occurring. If we use the same pressure on all individuals, some people might be fully occluded at 150 millimeters of mercury. Their arterial blood flow might be completely cut off, whereas another individual with bigger limbs might not experience much blood flow reduction at all. One of the biggest issues we see in practice and in research is that people will, will still do that. They'll, they'll pick an arbitrary pressure 
based on a previous study and apply it to everyone. And the best way around that is to standardize it because things like systolic blood pressure, limb size, circumference, contractile state, comp tissue composition can all affect it. What we do is we calculate something known as limb occlusion pressure. So that essentially is the pressure, the minimum pressure required to completely restrict all the blood flow in that limb, all the arterial blood flow. We calculate that pressure and then we prescribe as a percentage of that. So we individualize it and personalize it to every individual. And that where the research is moving quicker than clinical practice, which quite often can tend to be the case. We're starting to see more of it, but not enough. There's still research being published that doesn't really individualize the pressure. And for me, if you're going to put it in the clinical population, I, I want to be confident that I'm restricting blood flow to the desired level. And I'm not causing too much occlusion from a safety perspective, but also from an effectiveness perspective. If we don't create a, enough stimulus, then we're not going to get the full benefits of the training. Mm. So it, it's that balance of the safety and effectiveness is not just for one of them, it's for both. Really. Yeah, yeah. Is there a, a level, like you said, there's 100% occlusion, which probably a bit too much. Mm. Is it like 80%, 70%? What, what's like a, a common value? Like I know you, it's very multifactorial, but is there a common value that keeps coming up? Yeah, so it seems based on the what's been published so far and what we know, it seems that between 40 and 80% of limb occlusion pressure is the effective like Goldilocks zone almost. So anything above 80% we're getting dangerously close to full occlusion and it becomes a bit too, the discomfort becomes a bit too unbearable for some people. Whereas anything below 40 might be a bit easy. That's when you might be able to bang out 120 reps in every set because it's actually not too, it's not too difficult. <laughs> which can, we, we do that. We do that anyway, Phil. Yeah, I can imagine someone like, okay, I've got my arms all tourniqueted up. I'm ready for this. And just doing like four sets of 120 reps, you're like, oh shit, <laughs> didn't do that. I just wasted yeah. time. Limbs just fall off after. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it should be as you know yourself. You've done some of our studies. It should be difficult. So that's the key one. It's making sure you individualize the pressure, and then related to that, it's the device that you use. So if someone's tying a theraband around their limb. <laughs> or a bicycle in a tube, you have no idea what pressure you're applying. And also, for me, you cannot be consistent with that pressure across sessions. You can't say, oh, this is how tight it was last time. Because again, multifactorial, multiple things can influence that. Using a device where you can actually, A, see the pressure, but B, also a device that's designed to regulate the pressure. And the reason I say that is because one of my first PhD studies, we looked at different types of BFR devices that were on the market at the time. Now, this was 2017 when we did this. So there was significantly less devices available at the time we had three different types and we had a, a handheld pump like blood pressure sphig type device we had an, a surgical tourniquet which is designed to regulate pressure uh, and then we had a hawkinson device which is a rapid inflation cuff and we developed this system where we put pressure sensors between the cuff and the limb and actually measured what was happening the interface pressure between the cuff and the limb because it was evident to me that in the papers, people were saying, we applied 150 millimeters of mercury. Okay, but do we actually know that's what the limb's subjected to? Some of these cuffs are thick, some are thin, some are wide, narrow. How well is that pressure being you know, transmitted to the tissues? And essentially what we found is that in, in a cuff that isn't designed to regulate pressure, we saw big spikes in the um, superficial tissue pressure. So if you think, for example, we tie, a, say we tie a TheraBand around your arm, it's not designed to, to change. And then we'd get concentric muscle action and the muscle gets shorter and fatter and, and it pushes up against that cuff. 
it actually exposes the tissue to a greater pressure and a greater pressure gradient. And what we found is that cuffs that weren't designed to regulate, that would happen. So we could see almost like 50% more of the pressure that was set being applied. And this was resulting in more discomfort, higher pain scores, a greater hemodynamic response. Whereas in a cuff that was designed to regulate and adapt to changes in movement, the pressure changes were smaller and then the perceptual and hemodynamic responses were, were less. So I would also advise to use a device that is designed to do that. Okay. Um, especially when working with a clinical population. Yeah, yeah, certainly. That might be, that kind of leads into my next question was, because there's so many new products out there, what are the key things that if people want to buy some form of apparatus for blood flow restriction training, what should they look for? couple of key points. Ideally, you want a device that can, in some way, shape or form, calculate limb occlusion pressure. That's our gold standard now for, for setting pressure and individualizing it for every individual. So there's a handful of devices now that have built-in limb occlusion pressure technology where it will personalize it at that moment, that time of day for that person. And you can repeat that every time. So I think that's a key factor. Related to that, it's ensuring that the device is actually doing what it's doing because there's a lot of new devices that are coming out that claim it's measuring limb occlusion pressure or some other form or some other way of standardizing pressure, but they're yet to go through validation studies for the equipment itself or show effectiveness in a training study as well. It's early days for those yet. I'm sure we'll see research come out. Ones that can um, regulate pressure or calculate LOP and then just ones that have scientific evidence behind them. They have published scientific peer-reviewed literature to support them support their safety support their effectiveness again more so if you're using it in the clinical population i mean i don't i'm not going to mention any brands here but those that almost have to have a tourniquet built into either a t-shirt a pair of shorts we can just sort of pull it create some form of occlusion do you think they they work or do they work to some extent or is it just too potentially dangerous because then you're just auto regulating it yourself and you could end up <laughs> completely strangling the limb uh, and causing some damage uh, those type of bfi devices are probably the only only type i haven't got my hands on yet my thoughts on that if you think about it logically it's similar to just using a theraband like you you can't there's no way you can perhaps there is but to me i can't see that there's any way you can actually objectively and accurately quantify the the level of pressure applied are we making sure that pressure is even circumferentially around the limb how is it changing during exercise if we're moving with these devices on is it designed to regulate pressure or are we going to get big spikes in pressure like we just spoke about with some other devices so i'm sure there is some level of blood flow reduction to an extent like if you wore a really small t-shirt but whether or not that's going to be effective creating a significant stimulus for adaptation i don't know and i'm pretty skeptical about whether personally i don't think that would be the case but I'm sure there's probably research being planned already already ongoing with those types of devices. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, where it goes anyway. So I set up on Instagram an opportunity for people to throw in some questions. And there's three I was going to throw your way, if that's all right. Sure. So first one's from Cole Vincent. He wanted to know a little bit around blood flow restriction training on the possibility of it helping with pain reduction it didn't specify what the pain was but has it been utilized to try and reduce pain especially with those that have been injured yeah it's a great question and that's actually the primary focus of my current postdoc research so it's a question i'm definitely happy to talk about so we know exercise itself causes pain reduction it's often called exercise induced hypoalgesia and what we know from years of research is that the more intense the exercise and the longer the duration, 
the greater that effect. And then 70% 1RM and, and 20 minutes plus, for example. What we've seen in some, only a handful of, there's less than five BFR studies showing this, but what we've seen is that if we apply blood flow restriction during low intensity exercise, we get, we create a greater hypogesia effect. And that was a study we did last year, which we got published in JAP, which is a really good paper. And we looked at paid sensitivity to the mechanical pain stimulus pre and post exercise. And essentially what we found is that we had a low intensity exercise group. It's like 30% of one max. And when we added the blood flow restriction to that, we caused a greater reduction in pain sensitivity, which was great. And actually, when we used a higher BFR pressure, so like 80% limb occlusion pressure, the effect we got was greater than what we saw with high-intensity exercise. And that kind of reflects some of the clinical studies where they've compared high-intensity training and BFR training over eight weeks. And they found in a clinical population, there's a greater reduction in pain over training in the BFR group. So I wanted to start digging around um, that and try and figure out if something is actually occurring, what the potential mechanisms are. And if there's something going on, how could we optimize it? Mm. What's the plan going forward with that? What's, uh, I guess, from study, I don't have to go into too much depth regarding study design, but what's the next research question? So we we did a study in healthy, non-injured, pain-free individuals with resistance exercise. We've repeated that with aerobic exercise to see if there's a similar effect because we see exercise-induced hypogesia both with resistance and aerobic. So I'm trying BFR in both. Uh, and then the next step is to use it in population with chronic pain. So whether that's someone with anterior knee pain, patellofemoral pain, hip pain, anything like that, just to see, okay, does it have the same effect? Because one thing we see within the literature is sometimes in people with pain, exercise makes it worse. So they get we get hyperalgesia and it actually makes things worse for them. So the next step is to put the BFR in that clinical population and go, right, acute hyperalgesia, are we seeing the same as what we see in and pain-free individuals in terms of pain sensitivity to a stimulus and see if that works that's wicked i'm going to look forward to looking out for that that's really quite interesting you'll be taking part in some of those studies most likely yeah i'm sure i'll get like a (laughs) message not too long after this yeah i've got to keep it going i'm in most of your studies so so i need to uh i need to keep that going i I think you've done every single one bar the acl trial which i'm obviously i'm glad you weren't part of that because it meant you didn't have a recent acl injury but yeah recent yeah recent yeah that's right up your street there i think me as a participant pilot study (laughs) yeah so the next one was by lars kemperman can blood flow restriction training increase capillarization in muscles with a big cross-sectional area real physiology on this yeah good question yeah no good question so there's not a great deal of research on either the magnitude or timing of microvascular adaptations to bfr training so one particularly interesting study and it's coming back to that high frequency thing we spoke about earlier that high frequency application by nielsen et al last year and they did basically a three-week high frequency program of twice daily BFR training and they looked at multiple things but one of the things they examined was microvascular adaptations and what they found essentially is that uh, there was an increased number of capillaries per myofiber and increased capillary area following training they also saw in that study myofiber hypertrophy so the actual capillary density itself remained unchanged but one thing I found particularly interesting about this study is that the magnitude of changes that they saw in three weeks were basically the same as what we'd expect after two or three months of strength or endurance training. The level of change in capillarization was was equivalent to two or three months of training, but with three weeks. That was, for me, is the, the, the best study in that area at the moment. And 
I'm sure there'll be many more following up their methodology. And the key thing I think there is to look at how does that compare with two or three times a week of BFR training? Do we see the same effects or do we need a high frequency approach for that? Yeah. No wonder BFR has got so popular in the last decade and now is really growing with the sort of healthy population. Like if we're seeing adaptations that quick, that's in the third of a time. That's really quite incredible. Yeah, it really is. And, and we're seeing the same with hypertrophy and strength. And, you know, some of the early studies out of Japan, they were seeing changes in like, hypertrophy for two weeks. Like, yes, they're doing five sessions per week, just 10 sessions, but you know, two weeks. So it's, that's why I think it's a really good intensive rehab tool to use to someone in the early phases of, of rehab to accelerate recovery. But also, if you think from an elite performance perspective, get them back quicker. And to football clubs and rugby clubs, that's really beneficial because those players are being played... If they're injured, they're mm. being paid a lot of money to sit on the bench. So, yeah, so yeah. they want them back quicker. Yeah, I was just saying yeah. that's money. Going to save yeah. the... Yeah, so... Indirectly save the clubs millions of pounds almost. Hopefully, yeah. If it has the these effects with the injured population as it potentially can do. Yeah, and so one of the key factors here is that there, there is a body of research on athletes, so highly trained individuals, um, where they've taken them, so they're doing resistance training at the time, and they take them out of that program and they put them on a BFR program. So they reduce the load from 80% 1RM down to 20-30%, and we still see some form of adaptation, probably because it's an unaccustomed stimulus, but typically the magnitude is quite small there. So again, it's being realistic about what we're expecting to get from it but we, we do see adaptations in, in athletes and healthy individuals so obviously it's not just useful for injured and the last question is by my boy adam matusi uh, and it covers what we talked about earlier regarding what type of cuff or what the factors we need to take into consideration when maybe purchasing a cuff so thoughts on cuffs that auto regulate occlusion pressure such as air bands and i won't mention the brands but you're quite familiar so what's your opinion on those cuffs that are coming out now which propose that they auto regulate the pressure as we mentioned earlier that's one of the things i think is a key factor with the bfr device so that it can calculate lop but also actually regulate it and regulate devices that regulate pressure are much more beneficial than me and safer the key thing with all the ones coming out now that are claiming to do this is are they actually doing that i want to see scientific peer-reviewed evidence published and the same findings from several independent research groups that the devices are actually doing what they say they are. There is a handful of devices, you know, a couple that have been validated. We I did some validation work on, on one type in my PhD, and we know it's doing what it says it's doing. So I suppose my thoughts are, if the research comes out to, to support the claims, then great, we know it's doing what it says it is. But until then, I would be reluctant to use those in in, in the clinical population, especially. Yeah. So the question involves that, I'll say the brand names, the, the air bands by Vald and by, by Suji. But I guess before you purchase them, do a bit of research regarding how well they've been used within the research. Have they been validated? Are they reliable? And then if they have and you've seen the research, then they should be a pretty good uh, purchase. Yeah. And I mean, the same goes for all aspects of life. If you're going to buy a new laptop or buy a new car or a new bike, you do a bit of research first before, and if it's got bad reviews or no reviews, that puts me off. I think uh, this the same goes here. You want to be sure that what you're buying does what it says it does, and especially when it's something like auto-regulation or pressure. And I think I'm quite a big advocate of that because of the study I did in the PhD, because obviously you, you have a bit of pride. of We have a lot of pride over your PhD studies, but 
for me, that was a really novel finding is that we were showing the spike in pressure and that was potentially explaining differences in the level of discomfort between devices, et cetera. So for me, that regulation is really important and you want to be sure that the devices are actually doing it properly. So they're regulating properly, but they're also calculating or individualizing pressure properly as well. This whole topic is really interesting. If someone wanted to learn a bit more about blood flow restriction training, like what can they do? Where can they go? Are there courses, anything that you're involved in, which you're teaching that uh, they can sign up to? Yeah, so I think there is a lot of blood flow restriction courses around now. It's both in person and online. One particular group that I've done some work with is Owens Recovery Science, who are based over in uh, the States. They teach BFR courses focused around rehab and they're all over the US and now they've moved into UK and Europe and I teach on the London courses for them. So if you go to their website, you'll see courses listed all over the world there and anyone can sign up. You need to be a clinician of sorts, but any clinician can sign up. And I suppose reading research papers as well, some of the recent papers that are out and myself and boss Stephen were involved in a consensus paper with a group of individuals, 10, 12 individuals um, from around the world who are kind of experts in BFR and world leading researchers and we all did a paper and covered kind of everything we knew about BFR to date so reading something like that I think would be very useful particularly for the BFR novice and yeah I suppose things like this podcasts there's lots of online educational resources around BFR training now so there's plenty there for individuals to begin with yeah definitely well I'll definitely put your paper I know which paper you're referring to I've read that and I'll definitely put the link up to the courses in the show notes. What's the name of the course again? Just the one that you you teach the London branch? Sure, it's uh, owensrecoveryscience.com. You'll find everything listed there, and I can send you a link if you want. Oh, brilliant. Just to look at. If anyone has any further questions, how can they like send you a message? Yeah, so you can contact me on Instagram if you wish, anyone. Um, I'm assuming Phil will, will tag me in these things. So well, of feel free to message me there. And then, yeah, via email. So my St. Mary's email address is listed on the staff website somewhere, probably with a very embarrassing photo of me. So you'll find me there. Feel free to email me there. And, and Twitter as well. As I said, I'm sure you'll tag me in all of this. So I'm happy for anyone yeah, to yeah. use those to message me I if will they do. have questions. I'll put your Twitter and Instagram handles in the show notes and everything. Right, brilliant. As a last question, if you had to pick one guest to come on this podcast, it doesn't necessarily have to be within blood flow restriction training, but someone that you'd love to listen to, who would that guest be? Aside from Jurgen Klopp, who would probably be my (laughs) first number one choice, being being a big Liverpool fan, and someone astronaut-related like Tim Peake, I would probably say my old PhD supervisor, Ben Rosenblatt, who works at England uh, England Football at the minute. I don't know if you maybe thought about having him on, but... No, I've met Ben, so yeah, a really nice guy. I I think, yeah, I'll definitely... We'll contact him in the near future, I think. Yeah, do it. And if you need a hand convincing him, I'll, I'll try and help you out. I don't know how much how much of a hold I have on, on his heartstrings anymore, but he, I think he'd be really good. He's told me some really cool stories uh, from his time working in high-performance sport over the years, I think, and such an incredibly knowledgeable guy. Every time I hear him speak, I learn something new, so I think that would be, yeah, he'd be a cool guy to have on for the podcast. No, brilliant. That's definitely a good choice. Anyways, Luke, that was brilliant. Thank you so much. I certainly learned a lot of that and really excited for your future research, especially the stuff that's involving going to both the moon and Mars. I'm keeping an eye out on that one. Yeah, absolutely. We'll chat about that more later this week. Sounds good to me, mate. Right. Cheers for that. Cheers, Will. 
Thank you to Dr. Luke Hughes for coming on to the Progress Theory and talking about his experience and research on blood flow restriction training. An amazing episode which really answered my original questions around whether blood flow restriction training is worth the hype. The benefits of using blood flow restriction training can't be denied as it's been heavily supported by the research and it seems like its benefits would be huge if used appropriately with the right patient or athlete at the right time. I just wanted to provide some final thoughts on some key areas that really stood out for me. Firstly, just how useful blood flow restriction training can be during early rehab. We know after serious surgery, we go through a phase of muscle weakness and a reduction in muscle size. However, blood flow restriction training can be used almost immediately after surgery, like three days post ACL reconstructive surgery, during bed exercises and walking. And it's been effective at reducing this muscle loss and aiding recovery. Secondly, I was amazed the potential blood flow restriction training can have for athletes. As low loads are used, the recovery is much quicker, meaning we could reduce the fatigue from strength training but still get similar adaptations. This could lead to an increase in other training, or the reduction in fatigue will mean the athlete is more fresh for sport training and competition. And finally, the pressure created by the cuff should be specific to the individual and consistent over multiple training sessions. We currently don't know enough about the cuffs you can buy which don't measure pressure. Do they work or is their effect limited? Well, more research over the coming years will hopefully explain this. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode and have enough information to allow yourself to make the decision if blood flow restriction training is right for your goals. Please follow at The Progress Theory on Instagram and YouTube and share this episode on your Insta stories. Also, head to our website, theprogresstheory.com and listen to our other episodes. We will see you in the next one.